0: Good morning, SunWest. Welcome to Church at Home. If uh, we were in our normal plan situation right now, this morning would actually be our Stampede breakfast. So we would be he- hearing country music and serving pancakes and filling up the parking lot. And uh, and so I lament and grieve uh, that we aren't doing that this morning. Uh, but uh, soon enough, and hopefully next year we'll be able to do that again and serve our community uh, in that way, but in light of stampede season, uh, why don't you give a collective uh, yahoo or yee-haw, whichever one you prefer uh, at your house right now, on the count of three. One, two, three. All right, so I don't know if you're the yee-haw kind, which is the proper kind, uh, or you're one of those yahoo's that uh say yahoo, uh, but, uh, you know, Jury's still out on which is the right way to go, uh, but I hope you are having a good start to your summer as we head into July, and I just want to remind you again that our groups are kicking off this week, and some have already uh, kicked off, and please take a look at the group offerings in the catalog. We have over 30 groups running right now, and a lot of Sunwesters connecting in a variety of different ways through these next couple months, and this is going to be really exciting, I think, season for us in terms of connecting in community in an intentional way. Uh, But we're going to dive right into the book of Mark, and we're on week 18, and uh, it's been a long series, but I hope it's been a good series. I I feel like it's been quite timely as Mark has written this book for a troubled and persecuted and scattered church. And as we've been going through it, we didn't plan it this way, but there's so many themes in Mark uh, that I think are so applicable to us as a church right now in 2020. In Calgary, Alberta. And so God and His uh, providence just, uh, I think, uh, we're doing this series right now at this time for such a time as this. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11 today. The title of the sermon is Den of Robbers. And we're going to uh, focus right in the middle of the chapter. Uh, but just to bring you up to speed, we ended last week with the story of Bartimaeus and Jesus healing Bartimaeus and the, uh, this, this guy named, his name was Bartimaeus, but his name means son of honor. And Jesus was showing us through this blind beggar, uh, what it actually looks like to be a son of honor in the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples James and John kind of had the wrong idea. They thought, you know, being a person of honor was ascending further and further up the ladder and being, uh, you know, just seen and famous among the, in the eyes of other people. But Bartimaeus shows us that in the kingdom, uh, often the people of most honor are those often who are forgotten, uh, those uh, like Bartimaeus who are desperate, who are in need, and it it positions them in a posture to receive most uh, readily from Jesus uh, the things that we need uh, from his kingdom. So we are moving from that story and we go into Mark 11 where Jesus is finally entering Jerusalem. And all of the story in Mark up to this point has been in northern Uh, In the northern area, um, by the lake of Guinness which we've seen, and now they're descending south towards Jerusalem, on the way towards the cross, and Jesus has this triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of Mark 11. And uh, we know this usually as Palm Sunday, where we, where Jesus is coming in on a donkey towards Jerusalem, and the the scene is ironic, and it's meant to be prophetically so, uh, to be ironic that Jesus is not coming in on a chariot and a horse, but he's coming in on this this baby donkey, this colt. Uh, and you, you can just kind of picture him with his feet dragging on the ground, maybe behind the donkey, and I, I almost see Bartimaeus, because Bartimaeus is following him on the way, this, this blind man who was healed and is now falling behind Jesus on this donkey with other disciples, and they're moving towards Jerusalem, and people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us, and they expect this Messiah to come in and save them uh, in, a, in maybe a political way, in some kind of revolt against the, the Roman oppressors, Uh, But Jesus has quite a different idea, and this is seen uh, symbolically in him coming on a donkey. He's not going to save them in the way that they anticipated or they thought he would. So he comes in to Jerusalem, and we see at the end of that story, uh, it reads, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. So, Bethany was less than two miles away from Jerusalem, and this was uh, the small town that Jesus actually stayed in while he was visiting Jerusalem. He wasn't staying in Jerusalem. He would go into Jerusalem, and then he would leave Jerusalem and stay uh, in the town of Bethany. And this is the first mention of the temple in Mark. Uh, But we'll understand that Jesus' relationship to the temple, its authorities, and all it stands for is going to dominate the rest of the story in the Gospel of Mark. And so we have to understand what the temple is all about if we're going to understand what is happening in this last section of Mark. So just a quick outline, we're, we're going from Mark 11, 12 to Mark 11, 21. And we have another Markan sandwich, and I'm going to call this a fig sandwich this morning. Mark is serving us up a fig sandwich, and you'll see why in a minute, because it starts and ends with a story around a fig tree. So Mark 11, 12 to 14 reads this. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, again, the place that they were staying, they were going back to Jerusalem after Jesus had visited Jerusalem and the temple the night before. Go to Bethany, come back. It says, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Wow. Jesus is hangry. We have the situation where he's hungry. He gets up in the morning, maybe he hasn't had breakfast yet and he He, he comes out and he's looking for something to eat and he's expecting this tree to have fruit to feed him even though it wasn't in the season for a fig tree to have fruit. And he responds and he's hangry and I, and I get it. You know, it's, as we head into summer, one of my favorite dishes is really anything that involves rhubarb. I love rhubarb, crisp rhubarb pie, rhubarb, anything. I used to eat it even raw as a kid and, uh, and we finally got some rhubarb off our plant. Last weekend, my wife made me a rhubarb crisp. And I was going to just kind of ignore the whole healthy breakfast idea. And I came downstairs one morning expecting to have some rhubarb rhubarb crisp and ice cream for breakfast. And lo and behold, that one piece that was left that I was saving was eaten by a couple of other members in my family. And I was hangry. I said, where's my rhubarb crisp? So Jesus, we see this hangry Jesus. And uh, if we don't have eyes to see, maybe that's all we see is that Jesus, man, seems really out of character. He got so upset and curses this fig tree, and it wasn't even the season for figs. Like Jesus, cool it, man. Uh, there's, you know, there's probably other food out there for you to eat. But there's more going on than meets the eye, and we recognize that as we pay attention to the fig sandwich. We're going to come back to the fig story at the end of the sermon. But from now, it goes from this story, where Jesus. Uh, Curses the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him. And then the next verse, as we go into verse 15, uh, continues and it goes into the story of Jesus at the temple. So like I mentioned, the temple is going to dominate a lot of imagery and symbolism and conversation from this point on in Mark. And the temple that is being interacted with at this point in Mark is the second temple. So if you're familiar with the biblical story, there was a first temple that was built under the leadership of Solomon and was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire in 598 BC. And then uh, the second temple was built under the leadership of Zerubbabel and the prophets Haggai, Zechariah. Malachi, and there was a se- second temple that was erected at that point. Now, during this time in the first uh, century, uh, D- King Herod was actually expanding and building on that second temple. And so this temple would have looked something like this, a picture like this. And there is so much depth and symbolism that is happening around this structure of the temple, this religious uh, structure that was put in place. And so let me just break down a few things for you regarding the temple. So in the temple, you have this court of the Gentiles, which is this outside court. And this is the place where, if you were a non-Jew, you could actually gather in that area. And that area, it's hard to tell in this picture, uh, but was enormous. It was 500 yards by 325 yards. And so just as a point of comparison, a Canadian football field is 150 yards long. And so this is more than three times longer than a uh, CFL football field. And the, the area is three, 35 acres. This is a 35-acre area in which uh, this courtyard was taking up. And at the time of Jesus, this is where the merchants sold sheep and doves for sacrifices, And so people would come from all over uh, and they would travel towards Jerusalem like Jesus was doing. And instead of carrying the sheep or their animals with them for the sacrifice, they would just bring money. And when they came to the temple courtyards, they would exchange uh, their money in return for uh, animals to be sacrificed in the temple system. And, and it's also a place where foreign money can be exchanged because they weren't allowed to use Roman money actually in the temple because uh, the Bible talks about, you know, not uh, worshipping graven images. And, and we learned that in Exodus. And so they would actually have specific coins that the Hebrews would use that had no images on it uh, that they would use in the temple. And so they would be able to exchange foreign money uh, for Jewish money. And it was a huge operation where people were preparing for the sacrifices in this outer courtyard area, and just to give you an idea for how big of an operation this was at the time of Passover in 66 A.D., there was a there's a record uh, that we have that tells us that 255,600 lambs were sacrificed during Passover uh, during that one time in 66 A.D. So that gives you. This kind of picture of the activity and the, you know, just this this machine that was running outside of the temple in the courtyard for people that wanted to participate in the Jewish sacrificial system. So the sanctuary was separated from the court of the Gentiles by this wall. And there was a phrase that was posted all over this wall in Greek in Aramaic and in Latin, the different languages that people were speaking. And this is what the post said. It said, No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surrounds the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to be blamed for his consequent death. So the separation was very real. It was you know, There were signs everywhere. You knew that if you were not uh, Jewish, that you had no business kind of going into the inner area of the temple. You were allowed to be in the outer courts, but you weren't allowed to go beyond that. So we had the outer courts, and then within that, within these walls, uh, we have the court of uh, where the women could be. The Jewish women were allowed to be in this area. And then in the court of Israel, which is right in here, uh, we see that, that that is the place where circumcised Jewish males were allowed to gather. And then within that, there was a court of priests, an area where only priests could gather. And then in the sanctuary, uh, this, this big structure in the middle, and it, it looks maybe small in the picture, but to give you another uh, scale, this was 150 yards by 100 yards, so this this thing right here is bigger than a CFL football field. So large it is, and so within that, uh, we knew that the priests were allowed to go in and out of the sanctuary, uh, but only the priests. And then inside of that structure, there was another area. It was a square uh, in which the holy of holies was, and there was only one priest, the high priest, that was allowed to go into that space only one time a year. And so we see this concentric circles of holiness where if you weren't jewish you were allowed to go here and then if you were a jewish woman you're allowed to be in this area if you were a jewish circumcised male you're allowed to be here if you were a priest you're allowed to go even closer and then if you were the high priest you're allowed to even go into the holy of holies and so this is the structure of the temple that jesus is visiting he's observing and he shows up on the scene and we read from verse 15 on reaching Jerusalem. Jesus entered the temple courts, so that broader area where uh, there was Jews, where there was Gentiles, where there was the exchange of currency and people were getting uh, animals for sacrifice. And he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He just kind of stopped this whole system. He was disrupting the sacred system. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So they were, they were threatened by his popularity They were afraid of him because they didn't understand him, and they thought that he was blasphemous because he was overturning the whole religious system, uh, to the point that they had now decided that they wanted to kill him. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples left and went out of the city and they went back to Bethany. Now I want to focus on this phrase in verse seventeen that is just loaded. It says, uh, And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. A house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And this is a reference. uh, There's a reference here to Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And if you've been following along with Mark, you know that he's pulling uh, phrases, images, symbolism, uh, scriptures from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and he's pulling them in to help us understand more fully what is happening in the story of Jesus. And so in Isaiah 56, if we're going to understand this this reference to a a house of prayer, we need to go back to the Scriptures, which the Jewish people would have known very, very well. And now let me read for you uh, in uh, Isaiah 56. I'm going to start in verse 3. I'm going to read to verse 8. And this is what it says. It says, Let no foreigner... Who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Which is a which is a fascinating... Uh, sim- when we think of what's going to happen next, when we talk about the fig tree again, just remember that reference to only being a dry tree. Uh, for this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose... What pleases me and hold fast to my covenant to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to Him "...to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and all who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt incense, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And we so see this reference to a house of prayer in Isaiah 56 is this beautiful picture where uh, there's eunuchs who were, who were other than, who were outside of, uh, you know, the core community. The Gentiles, we see uh, those who were formerly excluded now invited and included, and not actually excluded from the temple system, not excluded from the people of God. Uh, this this image that we've talked about over over again in Mark of the valleys being raised up and the mountains being brought low. The, here's another picture of that in Isaiah 56. The Ma- Messiah was popularly expected and wrongly expected to purge Jerusalem and the temple of Gentiles, of aliens, of foreigners. Jesus' action, however, is exactly the reverse. People were expecting that the kingdom of God would come when, uh, when the Jewish people would finally be purified again and they could go back to being this holy nation that was set apart from others. But this is not the biblical picture. Jesus does not clear the temple of Gentiles. He actually clears the temple for Gentiles. And many Jews thought that a higher degree of separation and purity was needed for God's kingdom to come, but Jesus shows that God's kingdom comes to the places where the walls of separation and segregation have been broken down and eliminated. This is the beautiful picture of this house of prayer that is available to all people that we see in Isaiah 56. All people who desire to follow God, to bend their knee to God, to be part of the family of God. Uh, There is nothing that will exclude them from that. So that's the reference to the house of prayer. And then we, we have this reference to the den of robbers. And so uh, Mark takes Isaiah 56 and he marries it with Jeremiah chapter 7. And Jeremiah chapter 7 is, uh, is critical to understanding what's happening in this passage. Actually, I have it on the screen here. Jeremiah 7, starting verse 3. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, that I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm... Then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave you, your ancestors, forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, a false God, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things." Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. This phrase, den of robbers. And, 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 and if we link it as Jesus, um, as he's bringing in Jeremiah 7, and as God is accusing uh, the people, if you really change your ways and actions and deal with each other justly, um, He's saying, reform your ways and actions. Do not trust deceptive words. It says that a few times. Do not trust deceptive words. What's it referring to? This temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And then at the end of the, and at the end of the, uh, the passage, it says here, uh, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. So the deceptive words and the belief system that was occurring in, in, among the Jewish people at the time of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is giving this prophetic word, after the first temple was built, before the Babylonians came and destroyed and conquered Israel, Jeremiah is saying, just because you have the temple does not mean that you're safe. Just because you have the temple, you've actually bought on this lie that it doesn't matter how you live because we have this special place and you can live however you want. And so he uses this phrase, den of robbers. And what are robbers? Robbers are those people that steal. And I'm not much of a thief. I mean, I think when I was, I remember being quite young uh, and going into the local grocery store and I stole a pack of, uh, or a few double bubbles if you remember those ones that had little comic strips inside them, I remember stealing those and chewing them and my mom uh, getting mad at me as she, I was walking around in the store chewing gum and she's wondering where I got the gum from. Um, other than that, I haven't had a, a long and illustrious, uh, uh, thieving career. But I will tell you what, I was, I was a cheat in high school. Uh, I got by on my marks and tried to pass, uh, by taking shortcuts. I, I cheated off other people's work. Uh, I can, you know, I I can remember some exams uh, in grade ten. Uh, this is my full confession here that I that I cheated on, and I, I won't tell you how I did it because I don't want my kids to get any ideas who are going to be watching this. Um, and then I and then get this, I even remember going to Bible school. My first year of Bible school, before I think the, the Holy Spirit convicted me and transformed my heart. Uh, I remember there's a third year student that I was on the basketball team with, and there was this big, uh, this big essay project, and I convinced him to let me borrow the project so I could, um, that I could copy it, uh, for, for my essay. Uh, and he reluctantly agreed, and I think, I was, I think I was quite convincing at the time, and, and so he, he borrowed it to me, and I remember him, uh, like the next day, just feeling convicted and wrong, and he's like saying, Matt, I, this isn't right, I need to get my homework back from you, and I said, no way, man, you gave it to me, and I, <laughs> Sorry to laugh. I, I never gave it back to him. Uh, and, uh, I had learned a way to, to cheat the system and to get some marks enough to pass, to get out of high school, enough to have a GPA to play basketball in my first year of college. Um, and I, I am happy to report that the Holy Spirit did get a hold of my heart between the first and second year of college and that, that was kind of the end of that story. Um, but, uh, I think stealing in, in many ways is, is similar, that you are, You are taking the work of somebody else because you're not willing to put in the work yourself. You are, uh, you are not living up to the call, uh, that is on you if you're stealing. Uh, You're not producing. You're not working. You're not, uh, you are not doing your end to actually receive, uh, what you're trying to get. And here we see that Jesus refers, as Jeremiah does, to the people of God as robbers, as thieves, that they're stealing. That they're stealing, not just from people, and that was happening, but they're also stealing from God. In a den of robbers, if you think about that phrase, robbers retreat to their dens as a place of safety, to escape judgment, to make sure they don't get caught. And we, when we neglect our God-given responsibility to co-work with God and what He's doing in this world, we become thieves and we become robbers and we actually rob God and rob others of what God wants to do. And the robber's den is being uh, equated to the temple. And Jesus is saying... You're robbing God. You're robbing others. You are neglecting the work that God's called you to do. And you think just because the temple's here that you can show up, participate in this religious system, and it's all okay. You are hiding. You are using the religious system as a place to hide, as a place to neglect your God-given calling. And we may think, well, that was the case 2,000 years ago when the temple system, you know, that's, you know, but we're, we're a part of the people of God and the, the church, and it's not quite the same as the temple system. Well, I, I would say we do the same thing in church. I think often we, our religious activity becomes a place for, where we mistakenly think we're doing the work of God by showing up once a week, coming to church, and then we just go and live our lives however we want. And part of the seed of that idea actually comes in the I believe, came from the Reformation the 16th century uh, where there was this movement that said we were saved by grace and not by works, which is, a, which is amazing and it's true, that there's nothing that we can do to be saved, but it's only God who saved us. But we misunderstand what grace is. Yes, grace is forgiveness. Grace is forgiveness. Grace is God removing uh, the wrongs that we have done and being in relationship with us. But grace is also the empowerment to live a transformed life. Grace is what happens when the Holy Spirit fills us and transforms us from the inside out. That is the power of grace. Grace does not allow us to stay the same, but transforms us from the inside out. And I think the the church may have believed a lie in the 16th century that said, you know, we can live however we want as long as we are being forgiven and receiving grace. And at the time that was seen through religious activity and maybe today we still do the same thing. We can live however we want as long as I do this, you know, as long as I click the Christian checkbox and do the things I'm supposed to do. We've actually misunderstood what it means to be the people of God. Yes, God wants to forgive us. Yes, God gives us grace, but not just for forgiveness, but also for the empowerment to co-work with Him to transform us from the inside out and also to be a part of transforming the world. And so... Jesus brings this hard word against God's people and he's telling the religious leaders of the day that you are operating this place like a den of robbers. You think that you can neglect the work of God and you're going to be saved just because you have the temple, just because you have the Holy of Holies. And as we're going to see, they actually misunderstood what the temple was all about and Jesus is going to tell them very soon, and he's going to tell us very soon in the Gospel of Mark, that he himself is the actual temple. And Uh, We'll unpack what that means as we go forward. But for now, we go from that story back to the fig story in Mark 11, verse 20, 21. Remember, we got the fig sandwich, and this is how the section ends. It says, In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, if we go back to Jeremiah, we can see that fig tree... Uh, was also an illustration used uh, in the next chapter in Jeremiah 7, which we just read. And in the next chapter in Jeremiah 8, it says this. It says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. See, Mark is trying to show us like all the layers of what's going on here. And fig, the fig tree was used as a symbol of judgment actually throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah 34, Jeremiah 29, Hosea chapter 2, Joel chapter 1, Micah chapter 7. Uh, the fig tree was used in this way as a as a as a symbol of God's uh, judgment, that there was not going to be fruit on the tree. And so we see that the fig tree situation that Jesus encounters, it wasn't just an issue of Him being hangry. He just wasn't, He wasn't just looking for breakfast and was upset. It was, it was a prophetic act. That the tree, at that time, it said, uh, there was leaves on the trees. And so if you understand the way, uh, fig trees work is the the leaves sprout on a fig tree about two months before there's actually fruit on them. And so Jesus comes to this leafy tree. It was the season where the leaves had come out, but it was the season before the fruit was there. And, and so we have this leafy tree that looks like it's full of promise, that looks like uh, there's fruit on it. And it, it, it's a symbol of the temple where it looks really good on the outside. There's all this religious activity. We might, be, we might buy into this idea that there's a lot of good things going on. And Jesus identifies it for what it is, this religious commerce, this activity, this... Uh, This activity that was far from the activity of God that he had called his people to. In Jeremiah 7, we see that the activity of God that he was calling his people to was to look after the orphans, the widows, to care about justice, to worship him and him alone. This was the activity of God's people. And they had mistaken that activity for religious temple activity. And so on the outside looking in, maybe it just looked like this this fruitful tree, because it had all these leaves, but as you get closer and you look closer, there was actually no fruit in it whatsoever. The religious activity of the temple looked really, really good. It had all these leaves, but it was not fruitful. It was not bringing about the transformation in the lives of God's people or in the world around it that God wanted or intended. So this is, this should cause us to ponder, I think. Um, and I don't think it's any coincidence we're looking at this during this time of COVID, and we have all the, we have many people that are just saying, when can we gather again and go back to church on Sundays again? Uh, and I'll say again, that I miss it, that we're still planning on moving back. We're re-looking at this every single week. Uh, but I would ask the hard question. When we regather as a physical group, is there a potential that we might miss the heart of God? That we might just go back to religious activity and rhythms without paying attention to the refinement that God might want, be wanting to do in our hearts in the season. Are we potentially mistaking religious activity for kingdom fruitfulness? And regardless of whatever the season looks like, I would implore you, and I and I feel like God is calling me too, that that we would become a people of prayer, that we would seek the heart of God, and prayer is not just you know praying to God and trying to get him to do what we would like him to do prayer is actually being formed by God's heart prayer is trying to come into alignment with the will of God in our lives and the world so may we become a people of prayer in this season where we understand God's heart for his world and for his people let's look out for the fatherless let's look out for the widow let's look out for the orphan let's orphan let's look out for those who are isolated and lonely who are struggling with anxiety, with depression, who are uh, experiencing job loss, who are experiencing health decline. This is the religious activity that God is calling us to. May we be people that break down walls of segregation and separation. And may this be a season, I, I believe, where God can actually refine us and ask us, are we just busybodies, religious busybodies, doing religious activity, or are we fruitful? Are we caring about the things that God cares about? This was the challenge that Jesus brought to the temple. This is the challenge that Jeremiah brought to the temple. And I believe that this is the challenge that the Holy Spirit is bringing to his church today in 2020. Let's be people of fruitfulness, not just religious activity. Let's not be be a den of robbers. Let's not be thieves. Let's not rob God or others. But let's be producers and co-workers with God and what he's doing in our world right now. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who is all-knowing, all-loving. We thank you that you're a God that's full of grace. Lord, we thank you that part of that love and that grace is giving us hard words, challenging words, words that we're intended to chew on and reflect on, that are intended to refine us. Lord, we may be a May we be a people of prayer, that people that seek after You to understand Your heart and Your will and what You want to do in us and through us and in this world. Lord, we thank You as we just celebrated Canada Day this past week that we live in a country with freedom, with religious freedoms, that we get to do activities of worship and in community. May we not take that for granted. But Lord, may we also recognize the heart of what you've called us to is not just religious activity, but transformation. May you transform our hearts. And in this uncomfortable season, Lord, where we all have different ideas and opinions of what we would like to be doing as a church community, may you do what you want to do in us as a church community. That we would be your people on mission with you in this world. And that you would open our eyes and ear ears to see and hear what you're doing among us and that we would follow you like your disciples did to the cross to bring transformation in our world in jesus name i pray amen okay uh just a couple of going deeper questions for you to reflect on this week in your live church watch party again i encourage you to gather other families watch together I'm hosting a live watch party uh, at the church on Sunday morning, so if you don't have another or other families uh, to watch with, maybe you want to join us on in a bigger watch party here at the church facility together, Uh, you can find that information on the groups page. But the going deeper questions to talk about, reflect on, pray about, what does the phrase den of robbers mean? In what way could we apply this message of warning today? Obviously, Jesus was giving a strong message of warning. How could... Should we respond to that today? What's the difference between religious activity and fruitfulness? How do we know that difference? And how do we know if we're being fruitful or just religious? What role does prayer play in that? In what ways do you think Jesus might be clearing the temple or the church today at this time? What do you think Jesus is inviting you to do in response to that? So, Son, I to pray as you reflect and invite God's Spirit to, to lead you and speak to you, and as you re- reflect on these questions, uh, that it would drive some of these truths uh, deeper. And then we continue to be people not just of religious activity, but people of godly activity that are, co- are co-working with God to do what He wants to do in our lives and in our world. May that be so. Amen. <laughs>